Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Hey, so this is part two of Ruth and the Hidden Labor of Social Reproduction. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I'd recommend pausing this one and starting there. But for those of you who have already listened to part one, let's have a little recap. In the previous episode, we dialogued with the book of Ruth through an uncommon lens. Rather than accepting the popular interpretation that reads Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz as all buddy-buddies, we saw how both Ruth's labor and her body as an impoverished, foreign-born female servant, is constantly governed by people more powerful and wealthier than her. Ultimately, she represents to us someone whose work was imposed upon her, devalued in the community, and hidden beneath the advances of others. Naomi, Boaz, and the people of Judah all prop up their lives and their future on Ruth. And we also hinted at some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. We said that In a similar manner, reproductive work, or the labor of social reproduction, is one imposed upon particular groups of people, but not all. Two, it's devalued and rendered insignificant. And three, its presence is magically erased and hidden from sight when we tell our own stories as individuals and as communities, when we buy all the things we need and want. And when our bosses buy our labor power, we sell to them for a private wage at work. This episode is going to briefly talk about what social reproduction and reproductive work is, how capitalism has tended to relate to reproductive work, and how capitalism uses constructs like gender, race, and citizenship to regulate, devalue, and hide the labor of social reproduction. But I want us to keep in mind that none of the profits billionaire employers like Bezos and the Walton family exclusively keep for themselves— None of the big bucks raked in by lenders and investors like J.P. Morgan, Warren Buffett, and George Soros. None of that rent money privately extracted by landlords like Frederick, Fred, and Donald Trump from the wages working people spend the majority of their week working for. Not a single dime of any paycheck you and I have ever received as employees would ever happen without reproductive work without people reproducing our labor, without someone ensuring we have the most basic means to survive each and every day into the future. It's that important for the capitalist economy that primarily serves the interests of the wealthiest elite. And it's that foundational to yours and I's relational well-being, our human flourishing, even our very existence. But before we say anything more about reproductive work, I want us to think about a magical and mysterious event that happens every morning and evening people arrive at their places of work. Human labor power is a commodity, and by that I mean a person's physical and mental ability to perform different tasks, whether it be typing at a desk, coming up with ideas in the office, moving product in the warehouse, is something that in our world today is bought and sold on the market. The vast majority of us, not everyone, but the majority of people, have to sell our labor to someone who has capital. We commodify our own labor by selling it to others because in this world that we have created, we need money in order to survive. 
And for the vast majority of people living today, selling your labor is how you make money. If you or someone in your family doesn't sell their labor, you will die. Because all the things people need in order to live is purchased on the market. And in the labor market, employers are the buyers of this commodity. Labor, sold by an employee and bought by an employer, is consumed by the purchaser of that commodity. When I go to the store for some cauliflower to make buffalo cauliflower wraps, or some beans to make a delicious chili, I buy those commodities so that I can consume them. Same thing happens with the commodity of human labor. The employer consumes this commodity by putting it to work. Now, hold on to your wands and potions, you fans of wizardry, because here is where the magic happens. People, apparently, have a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of strength, a finite degree of mental, emotional, and psychological livelihood. And every day, when the employees show up to work, the employer consumes this commodity by spending the worker's energy, stretching their muscles, using their mind, and directing their every movement. But as a commodity, bosses want to consume as much of their purchased labor as they can so that they can best compete with their competitors. Because of market competition, they wouldn't want to waste such productive labor power. So, at the end of every day, and I bet you know what this feels like, workers are drained. They're spent. All their energy has been consumed. And then they leave. Labor comes in in the morning. It is used up, and when the shift is over, it leaves. But the almost mystical thing about this all is that each and every morning... The commodity that the employer used up and consumed yesterday is restored. It's replenished. It's reproduced. Jesus, what a miracle! Even though a person's labor is depleted and drained throughout the day, that same person shows up the very next day with new energy, new life, and new strength. Think about it from the perspective of the employer, the consumer who buys this commodity. You consume this thing called labor. You efficiently drain this energy and muscle and brain however you want to. The person leaves after the agreed amount of time. And then that same person, whom you consumed yesterday as efficiently and intensely as you possibly could, comes back to you ready to be consumed again. What happens between the moment this used-up commodity leaves and when it returns in the morning, renewed and revived? Eh. Who cares? As employers, that's not our responsibility. This is the market. We individually buy other individuals' labor for an agreed-upon portion of the day. No more, no less. What happens to the labor power we purchase when it's not at work is not something we are concerned about. Our relationship is simply between two individuals. What happens between business hours is not our problem. Or not... This magical event that employers both depend upon and benefit from, this continual, might we say, resurrection of used-up employee labor day after day, month after month, year after year, helps introduce us to the hidden and disguised reality of reproductive work. So what is social reproduction? Reproductive work is the work of creating, maintaining, and caring for human beings, in Feminism for the 99%, Cynthia Aruzas, Nancy Fraser, and Tithi Bhattacharya put it like this. 
Social reproduction refers to the people making activities that, quote, sustain human beings as embodied social beings who must not only eat and sleep, but also raise their children, care for their families, and maintain their communities, all while pursuing their hopes for the future, end quote. Social reproduction is work that secures the future. It ensures that people have the basic and necessary means to survive into tomorrow, into the next year, into the next decade. Without it, we would literally cease to exist. Reproductive work is care work, work where people receive physical care, emotional care, and even spiritual care. Listen up, churches. Social reproduction is how children are raised. Elders are cared for, wounds are addressed, dinner is prepared, clothes are washed, communities are enlivened. Yet, as Aruza, Fraser, and Bhattacharya remind us, reproductive work is about more than securing food and livable shelter. Humans are literally reproduced through sexual relations. Even more, reproductive work is the site where values, habits, wisdom, and knowledge is given. In reproducing human beings who are social beings, we are educated and taught to behave in some ways and not others, to value some things over others, to see some actions and events as beautiful and meaningful and not others. So again, reproductive work is labor that creates, maintains, and cares for human beings. Now, let's just say that we all agree this stuff is pretty important. How does capitalism tend to relate to reproductive work? If human beings didn't reproduce ourselves, we would cease to exist. And if we, say, had access to food and shelter, but not emotional and psychological care through friendship and human interaction, as is the case for persons punitively tortured in solitary confinement, then we would unravel, as many incarcerated persons put under such conditions do. And if a massive labor power was not reproduced, employers wouldn't have any labor to purchase and to exploit, thus making reproductive work a very integral re reality for capitalists if they wish to continue to exclusively accumulate more and more wealth. So here we can say that capitalism and all the juicy profits privately accumulated on the backs of employees, debtors, and renters are very dependent upon reproductive work. And this is really important for us to see. Capitalism and all of the wealth produced in capitalist enterprises, the wealth that ends up concentrated at the top, at the expense of everyone else, is dependent upon someone doing the devalued and often entirely unpaid labor of social reproduction. But here's the thing. Even though capitalist power and wealth would not exist and is completely dependent upon lots of people doing the necessary reproductive work, it doesn't want to pay for it. We're going to talk more about this in our next series, but if profit maximization, compound growth, and ceaseless accumulation of wealth is capital's primary goal, then it's going to do whatever it can to cut down on the costs. And this is one part of the whole grand process where the ruling elite capitalize off of free, unpaid labor. We talked about how workers are exploited a few weeks ago, how they are not paid for all their work and have no say about it. But could you imagine if there was an enormous labor force that capital profits from that, for the most part, receives nothing in return? I hope you can, because that 
is our reality. As capitalism emerged, it transformed communities. It transformed relationships. And one of its major transformations was a new and unique division of labor. On one hand, it said some people will do profit-making labor. And on the other hand, some people will do people-making labor. Alright, so you got this division between profit and people-making labor. Commodities will no longer be produced in or near your homes by all people in the community together, as was the case before capitalism. Families will become isolated entities, and productive work will move outside the home and under the governance of those who have capital. And while one group of people will have to produce monetary value and profits for their wealthier bosses at work, the other group will be charged with doing the free reproductive work. They'll have to do all the people making labor in their isolated private homes. And it's this division between profit-making work from people-making work that was fundamental for social reproduction to increasingly become imposed on some people and not others, to be devalued and rendered insignificant, and to be hidden beneath the work that, you know, really matters, the work of the profit-making business, corporation, or enterprise. But wait, there's more. So far, we've said that capitalism separated people-making labor from profit-making labor, and that care work became devalued and disguised behind the work deemed meaningful, work where people sell their labor to employers for wages. But how did capitalism convince so many people that this was not only a good and just way of organizing care work and people making labor in our communities, but the best and only way. While we could certainly learn from the historical development, for time's sake, that's something we'll have to talk about another day. For now, I want to identify some of the social constructs used to rationalize the disguising and devaluing of reproductive work, as well as its being imposed upon some groups, but not others. Because capitalism didn't just force anyone into this particular realm of unpaid and terribly low-wage labor. It didn't just keep anyone out of the places where profit, the god of capital, is produced, created, and accumulated. Capitalism, since it first emerged in the English countryside and swept into the nearby lands of Scotland and Ireland, and onward from there, has always employed gender, race, and eventually status of citizenship as powerful tools for both assigning particular groups particular kinds of labor and rationalizing their inequality. Let me say that again. Capitalism uses social constructs like gender, race, and citizenship for the purposes of intensely producing and accumulating wealth. Wealth produced by the majority of people of all racial, gender, and national groups, but concentrated into the hands of the few. Let's start with gender. Who performs the vast majority of free and low-wage reproductive work throughout the world? Women. If you are born into this world with XX chromosomes, you will be gendered by society as a woman. And in weaponizing the socially constructed gender binary, women get the shaft. Reproductive work under capitalism has been labeled the work of the woman, Care work, like child care, elder care, health care, emotional care, work that ensures our survival into the future. All of this has been said to be labor that should be performed by women and not men. 
And because patriarchy divides human beings into two groups, men and women, and then values the masculine over and against the feminine, reproductive work as the work of the woman is seen as less valuable and insignificant. Capitalism and patriarchy feed off one another. In our society, females are gendered as women, and women are rendered inferior in relation to men. Thus, the work of the woman is seen as less significant, less meaningful, less valuable than the profit-producing work of the man. But race and citizenship are also important tools used by capitalism to keep the labor of social reproduction super cheap, if not entirely free. Women, but disproportionately women of color, are systemically forced across the globe to do the housework, the domestic work, the care work. It is often undocumented women of color who work as full-time nannies for wealthy white couples away climbing the corporate ladder. It is people of color who fill the ranks of tech cafeterias in Silicon Valley. It is women of color who receive the lowest of wages in hospitals for ensuring our rooms are clean, the lowest of wages in hotels for ensuring our beds are fresh. And increasingly, it is disproportionately women of color who receive the lowest of wages for educating our children in our underfunded public school systems. But once they're off from their low-waged work, women disproportionately have the double burden of unpaid, privatized housework, awaiting them at home when they are done taking care of other people's children, other people's grandparents, and other people's bedsheets. None of this is accidental. None of this is new. This is a defining feature of capitalist societies, and capitalism depends upon patriarchy for the sake of the almighty God, private profit. Ruth's labor was both expected and directed by those who ruled over her. Her contributions and sacrifices, her dignity and personhood, were rendered insignificant in comparison to the desires and wants and advancements of everyone around her. Her body and her reproductive organs were simply a means for other people's ends. Who could be concerned about the foreign-born female servant when a child has been born to Naomi, when the people of Judah are one step closer to the great King David, when Boaz has advanced in both power and prestige? Ultimately, the real story of Ruth, or the book of Ruth from Ruth's perspective, really can't be seen. It's definitely not heard, because other people's advancements are built upon her hidden contributions, her hidden subordination, and her being sacrificed. We've talked about how political democracy without workplace democracy has proven to be one big joke on all of us excluded from the families of the elite. But we can't narrowly demand democracy at the point of production, the workplace. A fuller vision would extend our pursuit for equality and well-being and dignity and mutuality, our longing for the end of capitalist hierarchy and exploitation beyond the workplace and into our homes and communities. Capitalism has shown us that if we leave a hierarchy and inequality of power in the economic sphere, you can forget about having it in the political sphere. But the same must be said about the places and spaces we live and love in, the relationships in which we reproduce ourselves. Capitalism feeds on privatized patriarchal families, gender domination, and exploitative sexual relations. 
And so sites of social reproduction and the voices of those who disproportionately perform reproductive work must become central sites and voices for communities organizing for radical liberation. Communities seeking to realize an alternative to capitalism's good news of oppression and inequality. Of course, we have barely scratched the surface on reproductive work. We didn't even name any potential alternatives today. My only hope is that these two episodes have at least introduced the subject to those who had not thought about it like this before, and perhaps sparked a desire to talk about this in your faith communities, to talk about the ways in which capitalism has shaped how we think about labor we do outside of the workplace and people making labor in general. Most importantly, we need to talk about how capitalism has violated the well-being and personhood of us all, but most directly, the lives of women, and disproportionately, women of color, by segregating, devaluing, and hiding the labor of social reproduction. To wrap this up, I want to play on the words of Silvia Federici, because when I read these words, I couldn't help but think about the struggle of the early Jesus movement. The work the scriptures tell us those radical Jews and eventually Gentiles were being transformed for. Here's Federici in an interview with Matthew Carlin. She says, quote, The challenge is to transform reproductive work from work that reproduces people for the market to work that reproduces them for the struggle. End quote. And so as Christians, we might say it like this. The challenge is to transform reproductive work from work that reproduces people for the market to work that reproduces them for the way of the cross. Friends, thanks for listening. And a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.